This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. This podcast is sponsored by Genesis Aerosystems, a Moog company and leading provider of autopilots for rotor and fixed-wing aircraft. The Genesis STEC 5000 is the latest digital autopilot providing increased safety plus decreased pilot workload. It's being certified for Part 23 and Part 25 retrofit aircraft such as high-performance turboprop and turbine jet aircraft. To learn more about the STEC 5000, visit genesis-aerosystems.com. This week on Hangar Talk, you can make a difference with the 2020 You Can Fly Challenge. Now, pilots, be on the alert for the pilot's record database update. Also, a new airplane, incredible, from Textron Aviation. And if you're in the Cincinnati area and flown with a certain DPE, beware. Finally, an aviation event we think, we think at least, is going to happen. Ian, are you ready to do some Hangar Talk today? Let's do it, David. From AOPA, your freedom to fly. This is Hangar Talk. The 1056 turn right heading 130, counterpack final 13244.4. With your hosts, Ian Twombly and David Tulitz. This is Hangar Talk. Welcome to Hangar Talk, everybody. I'm Ian Twombly. And I'm David Tulis. Now, Ian, you caught up with our special guest this week. Tell us who it is. Yeah, George Bai. Really interesting guy. George is an engineer at heart, but um, he has started an aviation company. We've talked about this. Now, originally, this was the Sunflyer, but now it's an electric, all-electric airplane that uh, probably, we think, will be the first to the training market. So, really exciting project. That sounds good. I'm glad you caught up with George. I'm sure he's got a lot to tell us. Yeah. Now, David, before we get to the news, I also want to do a little bit, something we're really excited about here at AOPA, a new podcast. Um, This is going to be a maintenance-oriented show with Mike Bush, Paul New, and Colleen Sterling. And we've got just about a, a little over a minute that I want to play for folks. Coming soon from AOPA, it's a podcast featuring you. So what can I do beyond the usual inspection tasks to get some confidence in the structural integrity of the bat? Here's the deal. I have a really highly experienced GA friend who's got a lot of time in a lot of different airplanes. That's it. There's some good tips. Thanks very much. Hi, I'm Mike Bush. I'm Paul New. And I'm Colleen Sterling. Welcome to Ask the AMPs from AOPA. He felt a pretty strong vibration up towards the propeller such that he thought it was in that area. First of all, nobody ever fell out of the sky because of leaking past the rings. This happened to me with my Skybolt. I had an engine failure due to oil starvation. By pointing out that in, in the world of aviation, when somebody tells you a story that starts out, I have a friend, that's always very <laughs> suspicious. <laughs> Got a question for the experts? Write to us at podcasts at aopa.org. 
and make sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your shows. All right, so like we said, it's coming soon, and I encourage everybody to subscribe. I think it's going to be a great show. And you don't have to be an aircraft owner to learn a lot from this group, I got to tell you. Yeah, absolutely. That's very true. Okay, so hey, first bit of news this week. If you want to get involved, AOPA is still ongoing, the You Can Fly 2020 Challenge. And the big news for that, Ian, is that donations up until August 31st will be matched challenged. So that is a good thing. Your your donation dollar goes much further that way. Yeah, that's right. So if you don't know, a lot of the stuff that, uh, well, all the stuff really that the Air Safety Institute does, everything you can fly does to advance the pilot population, a lot of AOPA's other efforts, they're all pushed through private donations. So yeah, we, you know, we have dues for basic stuff and advertising and that sort of thing. But a lot of this is through private donations, pilots stepping up and really putting their money where their interests are to, uh, to help the future of aviation. That's right. And the donations to the AOPA Foundation for the 2020 You Can Fly Challenge, like we said, up through August 31st will be matched dollar for dollar up to $2.5 million. And that will be matched by the Ray Foundation. They are folks who carry on the legacy of James C. Ray, who believe that life skills are learned through aviation. Yeah. So curriculum, scholarships, you know, bettering flight schools, all this work you can contribute to. So Google or go on AOPA's website, the 2020 You Can Fly Challenge, and get involved. I think I'll do it too. All right, cool. So, hey, moving on, the uh, Pilot Records Act. Now, this is a story you've been working on for a couple of days. This is something that that mostly the airlines have, have had to worry about in the past, but is now creeping down into the GA world. And this is something that, that we're really concerned about. We are concerned about it, Ian. And the reason why is that this could actually be a pretty difficult task to do if you're a commercial pilot and you've got to keep up with not just with your flying, but with your records. And you've got to document these records. And so this is something that AOPA and the NBAA teamed up on and sent a letter to the FAA to to the administrator, Steve Dixon, and basically voiced some concerns about the negative impact it could have on general aviation pilots. Yeah. So the intent of all this is the airlines, you know, they need to share information about hiring and, you know, so that basically if a, if a pilot flunks out of one in training program, the other airline hires this person knowing that and, and knowing their training history. Because like, for example, this came as a result of the Colgan crash. The uh, One of the pilots, I think, had had a lot of failures in training, but still passed. And so they were, you know, trying to strengthen that database, which we said in the past really hasn't, GA has been a little bit affected. You get your start in GA and move on. It's been a little bit affected, but this will potentially impact a lot of corporate departments where, you know, if you read the the rule, the proposed rule, we should say, to the letter, the, you know, AOPA is saying that even every approach, every flight would have to be entered in this database, which you can imagine, nearly impossible. It's every every operation basically would have to be entered. and You really have to go through some pretty extensive documentation. And that's where the problem lies in the fact that it's going to take so much time to do that. You know, tentatively, it would take so much time to do this. This would really be an onerous task for a lot of very small flight operations, commercial flight operations. And listen, the other thing about, you know, we're talking about the Colgan crash, the other thing about commercial airliners and commercial airline recruiting tactics, the recruiters generally will have a good handle on their potential candidates in the first place. So there, you know, one might argue that there's no reason to change what's already working correctly. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's right. And NBAA's already done a survey and AOPA is going to saying that that you know, the airlines just don't request these records very often. And so it's really a burdensome requirement for something that's not even necessary and doesn't further safety. So keep an eye out on that. As we said, a proposed rule for now, but uh, AOPA is working on comments NBAA as well. And I've already sent a letter to uh, Steve Dixon saying like, hey, look, you know, we need to really look at ultimately what's the bottom line to increase safety. Exactly. And so also I want to caution Hangar Talk listeners that this is for Part 91 commercial aircraft certificate owners. And so let's, you know, keep our eyes and ears peeled in case it trickles down to other ops. And that might mean Part 107 commercial drone operators. So mm, we want to make sh- we want to keep an eye on this. Yeah, that is interesting. Hey, moving on, a bit of good news from the industry, which we know has been hammered lately economically. Textron Aviation, which of course makes King Airs now, the Beechcraft brand, they've introduced a new King Air, the 360 and 360ER. The 360 and 360ER, Ian, add on to everything that the King Air 350-350ER had and take it to the next level, as Tom Horn writes in his review of the new model. But it has really interesting features like thrust sense auto throttles that provide a lot of over temperature protection. There's a new digital pressurization system that lowers the cabin altitudes. This is really helpful for passengers. And also it's got, you know, increased situational awareness with the Sirius XM data link database system that extends all the way out through the Caribbean, Canada, and Central America, among other things. Yeah. So auto throttles, I think, are the big deal here. I mean, you know, finally having auto throttles come down, market a little bit in GA and and so to see it on King Airs, I think, is, is a really important step. We should say, you know, it comes with new interiors, too, which obviously you have to do when you when you increase it. But auto throttles, I think, are really what make this kind of a new model rather than just an update. I will say that those these 350s, now, they're, they're most often, I think, purchased from, you know, sort of government NGO-type operators. And that's partly because the 360, so the 350 and now the 360, the base model is 7.9 million bucks. I mean, these things are not cheap. No, and the 360ER is 8.75 million. But Ian, folks, uh, like you said, especially non-government entities, I, I've actually ridden in one uh, with a, a care group, mm-hmm. and you know they use those to do operations at short fields. And by short, I mean we're talking 3,300 feet. That's within the yeah. specs of this aircraft. And it's got an 1,800 nautical mile range, 312 knots, and a useful load of about you know, basically over 5,000 pounds. So that's why the aircraft are so popular in yeah. areas that are hard to get into, hard to get out of, and need critical supplies. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, you're talking about uh, you know a twin engine turboprop with that redundancy and the short field capabilities. I mean, there aren't too many airplanes that can do that pressurization. You know, go high. So yeah, that, that's that is pretty impressive. Now, before we move on, though, do we want to remind folks that there's an AD out there for some of the older King Airs and Queen Airs? Yeah, yeah. So a new proposal from the FAA, one-time inspection AD for, I think we're going to see more of these. We talked about it even last show, fatigue cracking and uh, some of the lower wing fittings. So something to, uh, to watch out for on some of these older models. And folks have within the next 200 flight hours after the effective date of the AD or within 12 months to take a look at this and, and get it fixed up. Yep, yep. So that's still a proposal, but, you know, we can expect these ADs often go final. Okay, hey, this something that I just I, I had to talk about this week, and this is a discredited examiner. Now, maybe you've heard about this or read it in the news, or boy, if you're if you're an unlucky sap, have to be subjected to this. But this does happen occasionally. 
DPE, so pilot examiner, something that every pilot is going to these days to get their check rides. It used to be you could go to the FAA, not so much anymore. A DPE in the Cincinnati area has been discredited with a, a really, really unfortunate result. And Dan Amowitz tracked this story down. He tried to get comment from Michael Pooler of Cincinnati, but we were unable to do so. But the problem here is that folks who have taken their check rides with this DPE now are obligated to take another check ride, this time with the FAA. It's now, I should point out, it's at no cost. And the check ride is called a so-called 709 ride. It's something that not many of us want to see or face, but it is going to be required. Now, read in between the lines. Now, why would you think we'd have to take another check ride if we already had a check ride with this one DPE? I ask you. Yeah, this is what really gets me with this story because, you know, I mean, when you go to a DPE, I would say there is virtually nothing you can do to make sure that this person is above board. I mean, the FAA has given them their designation. They have, you know, blessed this person and said they're allowed to give check rides. You go to the person, you pass the check ride. So I don't understand why it just doesn't, I, I just, it flabbergasts me why the pilots then have to go back and do new check rides with different examiners. I mean, I just think that is the most unfair thing in the world, and it drives me nuts. Well, it is a bit unfair. I, I see how you could view it that way, Ian. Now, there, let's let folks know that there are some exceptions for this. Now, if someone went on to get another certificate or rating and had another check ride, then they are exempt from getting that yeah. so-called 709 ride. Yeah, but only in certain cases. So, like, for example, you get an instrument rating, right? That, but that's based on your private pilot certificate. Let's say exactly. you get private in that instrument. you got to go do it again. you got to go do your private again because you haven't gotten your commercial certificate or your ATP or whatever. And so it's like, man, the money that you've invested and the time and the training. I mean, you could be years past this stuff and have to go and do it again. And I, that just, I, I don't know. I don't understand the logic of that at all. It drives me nuts. Well, uh, I could see that viewpoint, but we also I also could see the viewpoint that we want people to know what they're doing yeah. and be able to handle an aircraft and know the navigation aids and and really you know be very competent in in checking out the aircraft and knowing when a stall is approaching and and really some of the basic skills and you how else will you be able to test someone on that or ascertain that they really know it. If, if, say, a DPE really didn't even give a test, maybe they yeah. did it on paper and you'd never really got a check ride. Like, well, I, got a, I got a check ride uh, in, in Chattanooga with Ben Carr. He was awesome. But, you know, I was scared. And so there's, there's that aspect of it, too. You know, <laughs> you've got that that's true. That's a little true. trepidation, you know. So, yeah, you know, and I know, and I said there's virtually nothing you can do. There have been a few cases in the past, and I don't know exactly what the scenario was here or what the situation was with this examiner. But there have been cases in the past where the examiners are, like there was one guy in Jersey I know where English was an issue, right? So you have to, to be able to take a check ride, you have to know English. And so this guy was basically letting a translator, I think, in the airplane during the check ride. And so there's no way that, you know, and, and you should know going into that, that this is a sketchy environment and this could potentially happen to you down the road where you have to take another check ride. But short of that, I, you know, assuming that the guy was operating above board for most people or some people or what, and, and, ultimately, how does a student know? So, you know, that falls on the instructor. And so I would say, I mean, in some cases, it's like, what about a flight review or, you know, something else? Or if there was one particular aspect that this guy, you know, kind of cooked the books on, it's like maybe just 
re-examine that aspect or something. I don't know. I, I just think that it's like, it feels so unfair to me that years later you have to go back and, you know, pay for another check ride. And man, it stinks. Well, now the 709, the 709 rides are supposed to not be a fee associated with that. Ah, uh, that's true. So, that's true. So if point. you're with the FAA, yeah, you, you should be able to do this for free. Now, if you go to your own you know, DPE or another DPE, you might you might very well have to pay another several hundred dollars for a check ride. Yeah. But the 709 rides, whether they're like, you know, in this case, I would say it's not voluntary. You really have to get it done. But yeah. sometimes you go on those 709 rides because you've you've busted a, a far or something like that, and they want to make sure you understand it. Yeah. No, that's very true. Yeah, so if you happen to be one of those unlucky souls around the Cincinnati area, we we feel bad for you. But uh, good luck, and I, I guess if nothing else, it's an excuse to go out and you know practice some maneuvers and study a little bit. <laughs> That's true. But hey, let's move on to some better news. Yeah, and uh, it's always good news when you're talking about flying, and we're going to see a whole bunch of warbirds hopefully flying in the fall. Yeah, the Arsenal Democracy flyover. I think we talked about this maybe a couple months ago, but it was one of these maybe on-the-fence events. But it is expected to happen. So that's September 25th over D.C. And just like last time, they're going to have these sort of flights of, of like-capability warbirds, I would say, in various formations and, and sort of a review. You know, they have troop reviews on the ground. This is the, the uh, aircraft review in the air. And a very cool event. We were there for the first one. And really looking forward to the second. That was right before I started at AOPA back in 2015 when the first one occurred over Washington, D.C. in the mall. Now, we're looking at more than 50 World War II area airplanes. And Ian, you brought up a good point. They're going to come over in waves of aircraft with similar performance features yeah. or, or, or similar-minded missions. Yes. Uh, Thank so, you. So, you said that much better than I did. <laughs> yeah. So you'll have all the liaison aircraft together. You know, you, you would have the, some of the fighters together. You would have the, the bombers together, things like that. And so it is planned for September 25th. So folks could start to make their plans to join us in the Washington, D.C. area and see, you know, I, I guess if we do the math, there's 50 aircraft. They're going every two minutes. It's, it's like 20 different formations. Yeah. Very cool. Very cool thing. Also, something else that you picked up, you know, this Pearl Harbor event. Right. That's also expected still to happen. That's right, Ian. On September 2nd, Pearl Harbor, Hawaii will be in the spotlight again because that is the anniversary of the date when the Japanese forces officially surrendered on the deck of the USS Missouri in Tokyo Bay, and that ended World War II. So there will be a, a, an air force in the air showing the strength of uh, our air weaponry on that date and things are still looking up for that commemoration and that's part of the 75th anniversary of the end of world war ii yeah that's great so you know despite the virus and everything else people are facing with travel and everything else it's nice that we are going to have a couple of these events that that will happen so hey so a look from the past there with pearl harbor let's look to the future now now with electric aviation george by is our guest this week and like we said started by aerospace and they've got this really cool sort of program of bringing electric aircraft, unmanned, and more importantly to us, manned aircraft to the skies. George, yeah, thanks for taking the time to join us. I appreciate it. You know, it's my pleasure. I'm always happy to visit with you. Great. So like I, I think I might have mentioned, you know, we 
we do talk about electric on the show a bit, but I think you're the first guest we've had maybe as an executive of that side of aviation. So tell me a little bit about the E-Flyer 2 and, and exactly what it is. The E-Flyer 2 is an all-electric airplane. In other words, the primary propulsion system is solely powered by stored electricity and batteries running an electric motor. And it's purpose-built around that configuration. The outer mold line, the structure, the weight and balance, the aerodynamics of the wing, all are impacted, affected, optimized for an all-electric configuration. Now, why do you make that distinction all-electric? I mean, I because I know there are other parts of aviation that maybe you're thinking like a hybrid is at least yes. an interim step or, or maybe the final step, and you guys feel differently. That, that's right. We feel that if the airplane is designed well against a specific mission, in this case, with the E-Flyer 2 for training, that electric energy storage and the technology and the batteries is sufficient to not just do the job well, but do it excellently. Now, that's a FAR, FAR Part 23 full certified airplane. So it's, you know, we have more benefit around structure and weight and size. So we don't have the constraints and limitation of a ultralight or light sport aircraft. So that's an advantage, but the technology readiness is all the way there right now for batteries. So why did you do, you are going to certify it, and, and why did you decide to go that route instead of, let's say, LSA or, or Ultra, like, like you mentioned? Well, the weight allowance under FAR Part 23 and the new regulations that under what's called Amendment 64, so the, the primary regulations, the Part 14 CFR Part 23, and then the Amendment 64 allows for electric propulsion for the first time in history. And in the FAA, the definition of a light sport aircraft doesn't yet allow for electric propulsion. So there isn't really a pathway for an ultralight or light sport aircraft under the definition in the FAA as yet that allows for electric propulsion. But secondly, and, and all of us here as pilots, I think we understand this very well, the wing loading of an aircraft is kind of a definitive characteristic in terms of its behavior in flying, how, how things operate when you're trying to manage the flight path, particularly the final approach phase, you know, flare and landing. And the ultralight or light sport aircraft tend to have fairly light wing loading, you know, eight, eight, 10, 12 pounds per square foot. Whereas a certified airplane, a little bit heavier, a little bit more dense, a little bit more inertia, will be a little bit more controllable, a little bit higher wing loading, 15, 16, 17, 18, maybe even 20 pounds per square foot, less of an issue with gusts and crosswinds, things like that. So a tricycle gear, higher wing loading, with great visibility over the nose, a nice responsive appropriate balance of uh, propulsion thrust, and again, the primary mission of flight training to get these uh, new young pilots uh, ready to go. And so you want them really focused on, on the uh, flight path management, takeoff and landing performance and things without too much distraction with flight characteristics where you have a very light recreational kind of an airplane that would be a distraction. Yeah, okay. So 
going going the full certification route, nobody's done this in the states with an electric aircraft. So in that sense, you guys are, are trailblazers here. So tell me, how much of this so far has been a tech hurdle? So trying to balance, you know, weight with battery capacity, that sort of thing. And how much has been a, a certification hurdle, getting the FAA on board, making them, you know, even establish a criteria for you to certify against that sort of thing? Ian, you're uh, you're telling a, a a joke, right? I mean, <laughs> I mean, we are we are talking about the same thing here, right? Yeah, right, right. And so, um, FAA certification is a is a wonderful thing because, of course, you are getting into each aspect of the aircraft and down in in great detail, structure, systems, you know, of course, cabin uh, displays, lookout. I mean, there is no part of the airplane that remains untouched. And of course, the mandate from the FAA appropriately is the safety of all of those things, both individually and, of course, in the synthesis, all of it working together. And new and novel, of course, comes to play with batteries, comes to play with battery systems and computers, what we call the battery management system, comes to play with redundancy and safety and containment, heat, current, moisture. I mean, there's all all of the various aspects that just let your imagination run. And of course, this is the first, like you say, it's that it's ever been done before. So as an engineer, I love developing this airplane concept around electric. Uh, it is fascinating. It's fun. And it's profoundly important because, of course, of the benefits of electric that we'll get into here in a little bit. But in doing something brand new, as exciting as that is for an engineer, of course, there's every bit of the conversation and the process. Sometimes it's arm wrestling. Sometimes it's you know very enjoyable. But the bottom line is there's a lot of great engineers working hard every day to do something that hasn't ever been done before. So a great accomplishment by all concerned, our friends at the FAA, our engineering team here, the DERs and contractors kind of in between. But those of us who've been through certification before, I think we all can kind of smile with experience, look back and kind of talk about, you know, how deep the paperwork's getting kind of as a measurement of progress. And we embrace that we understand it, we accept it, but it is, it is indeed a, a challenge. Being a pioneer means, by definition, this road has not been built before. So here we go. Yeah, yeah, okay. So in that regard, you, you just completed what you guys are calling the critical design review. So what, is, what does that mean? So conceptual design is followed by preliminary design, and the, that, of course, is followed by critical design. The critical design phase is the point at which the design has matured and you're ready to transition into what we call conformity. In other words, the design in agreement again with the FAA from each of those components, you know, systems and structures and avionics and propulsion and energy storage, all all of the 14 or 15 different aspects of an airplane have been designed and mature enough to the point where we have kind of a consensus, if you will, that it achieves what we intended it to achieve from the certification perspective. So 
whatever the safety measurement is under structures, it would be bending and flutter and torsion and things like that, for example. The, the design aligns with the production safety or performance criteria. And that's a very great industry milestone. It's an exciting part, of course, for the company as we now can transition from this design phase into actually assembling, creating the tools and fixtures and molds and so forth for this very first serial number one. So great day, great day for the company. Uh, We are literally in the transition now to begin those initial steps around the the first one. Serial number one will be a company-conforming aircraft to the production design. So very exciting. So how, how long will it take you, do you think, to build a uh, conforming prototype? That's a great question. Uh, the answer is different depending on what aspect you're talking about. Of course, many we have many uh, wonderful supply chain partners that will be building their parts. We have contractors that will be assisting us in some greater or less, lesser fashion. And then, of course, their own internal company team doing final assembly and so forth. So some components we expect to be ready within weeks. Other components will take weeks, if not months. And by the time, of course, we complete serial number one and start static system tests, ground tests, taxi tests, and ultimately flight tests, uh, the better part of, oh, call it three quarters of a year will be taken up. It's, it's you know, number one is kind of built by hand. Number two and number three, more and more capabilities added, uh, and of course the number of the number of hours used to to create the airplane it will greatly reduce. But that first airplane, it's a, it's a learning learning airplane. Lots lots of time, kind of taking a look taking a look at did we find the proper final design for how this is fitted? Is the access port large enough to get my arm in and around there like we thought it would be with the CAD, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, it's not just about, you know, building an airplane that can fly and and has the specs that you hope, but it's about, can you actually reproduce this thing again and build it efficiently? That is so true. You know, whether it's safety or, or moisture or bending or twisting or, gee, I have a winter glove on. Can I still get around that that corner? You know, I have to, now I'm actually having to turn the bolt or, or fix it or or can i replace this part you know uh, and again in theory in the electronics uh, and cad cad design is amazing these days I'll, I'll have to say it's truly remarkable but the first time a human really gets in there it's very very helpful so some of the stuff that you're working on is obviously you know the more critical components the motor and, and the batteries you know, as pilots, most of us are used to horsepower and gallons per hour and, you know, fuel capacity and that sort of thing. So give us the, the kind of the brief lowdown on, on the specs that are going to matter when we start looking at an electric airplane. Yeah. So it, it's all analogous and in a happy way. Uh, in fact, but what I mean by that, it's, it's somewhat simpler. Once, once the basics are understood, and again, very straightforward, the, the amount of items to monitor the, the number the number of of bits of data that are coming at you as a as a pilot is much simpler uh, with an electric than it is with a conventional aircraft it's a single lever 
there is no combustion that takes place with electric. So it literally is taking electrons through the magnets in the motor to create, create torque, one moving part, 98% efficient in converting electrons to torque. That in turn, of course, rotates the propeller providing thrust. So very, very simple in concept and in, in operation, literally moving the lever to create, create thrust. And that's, that's a wonderful, wonderful, simple way to manage the, the airplane and its performance. And so what about, you know, I'm used to a, let's say a Cessna 172 with 180 horsepower. You guys, you know, in electric motors, you're looking at kilowatt or kilowatt hours, I guess. So how do we start to evaluate these things in terms of, you know, it's like, hey, we're, we're used to this amount of power for this much weight. Uh, what are we looking at in terms of electric? The internal combustion engine uh, is, by comparison, not particularly efficient. So a lot of horsepower in theory is wasted in loss of in heat, in mechanical friction, of course, those things are not producing thrust like like you would otherwise like to do with the energy that you have available. An electric motor is turning almost all of it into torque and thrust. So when you talk about 160 or 180 horsepower in a Cessna 172, the equivalent amount of of energy horsepower or in our case we say kilowatts in an electric motor you know that would be way too much relatively speaking so there you have more propeller blade that's available for thrust instead of for cooling there you don't have the mechanical losses or the heat losses that you have so an electric motor can be smaller in terms of the amount of horsepower or kilowatts the electric motor can also be smaller because it's more efficient and creating the same amount of thrust, the thrust equivalent energy uh, is probably a better way to kind of analyze the amount of or size of the engine to provide the thrust for your for your airplane. Now, the other thing I would add, and this is this is really fun for an engineer, particularly one that's focused on aerodynamics. the The airplane is much sleeker by nature. The electric airplane in the case of the E-Flyer, has an aero efficiency of 20, or some would call it L over D or glide ratio of 20, as compared to the L over D or aero efficiency or glide ratio of a Cessna 172, which is 9.6. So we carry the same payload, we do the same mission, but literally, our airplane is twice the aero efficiency or has twice the glide ratio of a Cessna 172 that we aim to replace. And that's because that we have a very sleek nose. We don't have that cooling required for the internal combustion engine. So that nose is very, very sleek. Of course, the wings can be optimized aerodynamically. Instead of carrying fuel, they don't have that, that secondary mission. There's that the wings are just wings and designed only for the optimum aerodynamic configuration for the flight training mission. So we have a lot of benefits. It's not just an electric motor, but rather the combination of all the things that we can pull together in a airplane design specifically around electric propulsion system. And I, I would add 
for there are some concepts I'm sure we've all seen, and we did it by aerospace did it as well, where a conventional legacy aircraft was converted to electric. Uh, unfortunately, an airplane designed around an internal combustion engine is not optimized uh, in a design, of course, for an electric motor and battery. And so a conversion has a pretty significant disadvantage as compared to an airplane that's purpose built and designed purposefully around the best features that electric can offer. Hmm. So you mentioned the purpose-built mission for the, the two, the E-Flyer 2, is, is flight training. Why did you decide to go for flight training? Flight training is, of course, where we all begin. And as pilots, I think we have uh, so much of our experience kind of growing into the profession of flying starts with, uh, as you'd expect, all of us in our in our primary flight training and then on into advanced flight training. And uh, as we all know, and in my own experience, the, the same airplane that I learned to fly in many years ago, decades ago, is still flying today. That's Cessna 172, you know, at King County Airfield in the Seattle, Washington area. That's airplane still flying today, decades, decades have passed. And our legacy fleet is nearing the end of its uh, useful life. Expensive to fly, expensive to maintain. Great, great airplanes that have done a, just an incredible job for such a long time, but built in the 1960s, built in the 1970s. And we're in desperate need for those aircraft, of course, to be replaced with modern, capable, new designs, new, new uh, trainers. And of course, the electric training has an operating cost benefit that is profoundly beneficial, profoundly beneficial. One-fifth the operating cost, one-fifth the operating cost of the uh, legacy Cessna 172 or Piper Archer or equivalent flight trainer. So the legacy fleet is nearing the end of its useful life, needing replacement. The high-tech new aircraft available together with the benefit of electric propulsion is what drove us at by aerospace to select electric and flight training as our first mission, our first airplane with such a, an important role to play and so many aircraft in use today for flight training. And then thirdly, of course, the projections going into the future after coronavirus of this great surge great requirement for, for new commercial airline pilots coming in the, uh, in the years ahead. So two to three years out, there's quite a demand, it looks like, from the forecasts for new pilots. Retirees exiting, of course, uh, new pilots required, and then the global macroeconomic growth, you know, putting a pretty significant demand on pilots, new pilots, for many, many years to come. It's not just cost, obviously. Many of us in the aviation community are aware of the heightened concerns regarding CO2. And of course, CO2 is important to, to some uh, more than others. In, in Europe in, in particular, there's a, there's a real issue around CO2 and, and the amount of pollutants and combustion pollutants that, that aviation contributes. And it's just important that we do the best we can given the technology we have to, you know, 
leave the world a little bit better place. Electric aviation does that really well. So there's a great operating cost benefit, but there's also reduced noise and the elimination of the combustion of avgas uh, and, and CO2 as a result. So, you know, one, I think, uh, skepticism people have, or let's say, you know, sort of unanswered question is this idea of, of a, uh, you know, the infrastructure. So at a flight school in particular, you know, it's like one of the things, flight schools, to make money, a lot of them are set up solely, you know, they got to have the airplanes flying. So, you know, they're used to these quick turnarounds for refueling and, you know, quickly turning around students. And so people are a little bit worried, I think, about charging times and charging infrastructure. So how do you envision that working? That's a great question, and many do bring that question up. The The great benefit that we have is that so many are working so hard on that that very question. And uh, many of us go back three years or five years or even 10 years, and of course, there was some validity to that concern. The number of chargers around various communities and across the country was fairly limited even three years ago, uh, certainly five years ago. That's that's really not the case anymore. And the new charger technology and the charging times, just amazing, you know, down to 20 minutes or less. And of course, for a flight school, it's hard to imagine getting avgas in your 172 in 20 minutes. By the time the fuel truck gets there, <laughs> 20 minutes have gone by if you're lucky. So uh, recharging in 20 minutes time between flights, that's a pretty happy day. Uh, and we're, we're very fortunate that the charging technology has really come along just even in the recent time frame. I think we'll be pleasantly surprised by the availability, the relatively inexpensive availability of these, they call them uh, level three chargers. And secondly, the airports most uh, that we have here uh, in the U.S. were built in the 30s and 40s, uh, a great number in the 50s and even early 60s as communities grew. And they were all plumbed, if you will, with utility uh, industry-grade electricity. The, the hangars today are not like a suburb. The, the hangars today are, are designed with the higher current, higher amperage outlets for tools and equipment to be used, of course, that require that capability as aircraft are maintained. So airports today have a nice advantage over the community at large. It's not like three Tesla chargers in a cul-de-sac and you're browning out the cul-de-sac. Our, our airports today, most of them, by, by far most of them have very nice capable grids with industrial grade electricity plumbed in. So look in your crystal ball a little bit. And uh, how how long do you think before a lot of us are going to be able to go and rent an electric airplane at a flight school? That's probably the, the initial capability is coming in two years time, two to three years time. They'll begin to populate uh, the larger flight schools across the country. And of course, in Europe, and to some extent in Asia, Australia, New Zealand. It'll probably be four or five years before there's a, a broader, deeper flight school uh, capability and rental capability. E-Flyer 2s and E-Flyer 4s, the four-seaters, will be 
making deliveries, of course, in large numbers uh, fairly quickly, but they'll be put to work. The, the demand for them is very, very great. Again, that operating cost benefit is a very powerful economic tool for the flight school and a very powerful economic benefit to the student. Again, as we all know, I think there's a very large dropout in pilot training and most people cite cost. So the ability to get the cost down, get the students coming in, have uh, economic success and flight training success uh, as a result uh, to build up our, our profession is very, very important. And so these airplanes will be uh, very, they'll be busy. <laughs> they'll be busy. Good, good. Well, I'm looking forward to it. George, thanks thanks so much for joining us. You know, it's really a pleasure and uh, I'm hap- happy to join you today. All right, David. So George, really interesting guy, and I know I know you and I are personally both rooting for him. Oh yeah, the E Flyer too. I think we've talked about this before on Hangar Talk. Ian, I really think that uh, students starting out learning basic stick and rudder skills could stay in the pattern and use something like that E Flyer two and really keep the cost down. And if we keep the cost down for the entry to aviation, we'll have more aviators. So I'm rooting for him. And the E Flyer four, that's a that could be a moving places machine. Yeah, let's make it happen. Yeah, I would love it. Love it. Hey, I think that's all the time we have for this week. I'm Ian Twombly. Our editor is Austin Hansen. And I'm David Tulis. But before we go, stay tuned for our next guest, which will be Jerome Stanislaus on the next Hangar Talk. And he is a, a person that's been doing a lot of outreach lately. You might have seen him in the news. Don't forget, you can get us at aopa.org slash Hangar Talk. We're also on Apple Podcasts and wherever you get your podcasts. All right. We'll see you next time. See you next time, Ian. Hangar Talk from AOPA, your freedom to fly.